Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guests today are George and Sedina Capanelli. They're the authors of um, an amazing book called Do Not Go Quietly, A Guide to Living Consciously and Aging Wisely for People Who Weren't Born Yesterday. And if there's anyone who embodies that spirit and can inspire us with it, it's this power couple. I should say personal power or inner power couple. Um, just a little bit about their background. They are both world-class consultants and speakers and uh, co-founders of a training company called the Information and Training Company. It's a business consultancy to top companies and governments that specializes in organizational and cultural change. Now, in addition to this, they're both media personalities and, and actors and, and award winners. Uh, George's TV um, companies uh, have won uh, film awards, Andy Cleo Emmy Awards. Um, I, I just, we could take the whole show talking about their background. So I'm going to stop here. Just take it as read that these people are amazing. So listen up, everybody. Here they come. George and Sedina, I am so delighted to welcome you to the show. Well, we're delighted to be with you today, Marianne. Thank Just you delighted. so much, Marianne. Very glad to be here. Thank you. Now, the premise of your book is that rather than seeing the years after 50 as a time of decline, they should be embraced as a time of harvest of accumulated wisdom and an opportunity for redesigning and, if you will, replanting one's garden for the second half of life. So let's dig in, pun intended. What were some of the things that you see in the social landscape that inspired this book? Well, in the, the 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 true inspiration, Miriam, for for our work um, uh, came from the experiences that both Sedina and I had individually and jointly with our respective parents um, when they were aging and uh, getting into the latter stages of their lives, and then when they made their transitions. Um, uh, both of us received uh, really significant wake-up calls. Uh, we'd been blessed uh, to have led uh, really healthy lives up until that point and had had not a lot of experience with um, uh, the, the aging process from an institutional standpoint. Um, and so when we made that passage, we both were shocked by the condition of the healthcare system and the strain that was put on the life care system. Um, and we were troubled by the fact that no matter what we did, we weren't able to provide for our mothers and fathers what we felt were the same kinds of care and support and uh, encouragement that we had received from them when we were children. Uh, and that's really where this journey began. Mm -hmm. And also, um, Miriam, it, um, at the same, around that time, we went to the International Conference on Aging in Sydney, Australia, and were privy to this uh, just array of different countries doing amazing things for their elders. And we were quite frankly uh, appalled that the United States was so down on the list and not doing what, what we could be doing 
to not only support our elders but to honor them. And uh, and also for me, it was kind of a perfect storm of transition. It was around that time I had uh, turned 50. My mother had recently passed, and I had moved into my new home with George. And I was all at once officially in menopause <laughs> and experiencing the loss of the first half of my life. So it was sort of a really a perfect storm of transition. And it, it uh, inspired me, along with George, uh, to do something about uh, our culture's myth of youth and, and something to regard our elders with esteem that they deserve. Yes, it's so sadly ironic that a country as successful and uh, such a world leader as the United States is so far behind in all of the markers of uh, healthy, good living. Uh, our national health is down the list. Our education has slipped way down the list. And we look at the political debate nowadays and it looks like they're trying to remove any last underpinning of the social safety net. You go into that quite a bit in your book, and the thing that I found so compelling was that you do point out that we are the ones with the power to change this. So let's start down that road. Well, it's true. You know, um, in addition to our sheer numbers, uh, over the next several decades, um, uh, a number of experts indicate that uh, there are going to be uh, the 50 percent of the population here in the U.S. Uh, and uh, an even greater percentage in some of the other industrialized countries will be over 50 at the same time for the first time in history. So in sheer numbers, we have power. We also have power in that we um, uh, represent uh, a large portion of the national wealth. Um, we will, in fact, over the next several decades, oversee the largest transfer of wealth in the history of the world. Um, but in addition to that, we represent a significant amount of buying power, um, uh, insurance, uh, the purchase of new cars, health care, leisure travel, uh, any number of uh, areas uh, of the economy are supported largely by this demographic comprised of older Gen Xers, boomers, and elders. Uh, and lastly, we have a lot of experience and accumulated wisdom that has come from uh, being on our feet and in the trenches a lot in our lives. We clearly were uh, instrumental in either the birth or the encouragement of most of the major social movements of the 20th century, human rights, civil rights, women's rights, animal rights, anti-nuclear, environmental. Um, so we have a heck of a lot of experience. So we do believe that those of us who are in these demographics indeed have in our hearts and our hands the power to dramatically alter the course that this nation is heading in, and as you so aptly point out, it appears to us that it is heading in the wrong direction in a number of major categories. Mm. It's almost like we are pitting our buying power against the buying power of the corporations over the politicians. Yes. Um, and the interesting thing is that I, 
I believe at least that uh, many of us forget that power. You know, we, um, uh, we tend to limit our voting um, to those elections, whether they're uh, 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 biannual or quarter, you know, every four years. Uh, and that's when we think we can exercise our influence. But the truth of the matter is we can influence it every day by um, the buying decisions we make, what products and services, what companies we support, what media we listen to. Um, and all of that can be so incredibly influential in where we go because those corporations that everybody keeps talking about that are uh, buying America on so many levels, they depend on our dollars to uh, create profitability. Um, and if we start giving them signals that we don't like the direction they're heading in by not buying, not using their services, um, we're going to get their attention really fast because underneath all the huffing and puffing, they, de they depend on our dollars to survive. Exactly. And um, those of us in the second half of life um, are responsible for about 80% of the nation's wealth. And that's a lot of power. Money's power. And we can use it if we can coalesce our, our energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the book starts out really on a journey of cultivating one's personal power. And there, there seem to be two aspects to it. One is to clear your own kind of musty cupboards of memory and, and, uh, and limitation. And you give some very powerful exercises and visualizations. Take us through um, some of the topics that we need to put in order in order for us to realize, to, to kind of move forward with a, uh, uh, our own personal energy and, and with a clean slate, if you will. Well, um uh, before naming some of those, I think the the point that you make is uh, is really vital to um, the, the 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 ultimate purpose of this book. Um, one of the things that Sedina and I believe is that uh, a lot of us throughout history have been motivated to make changes in the world around us. Um, but unfortunately, unless we put our own houses in order first. Uh, what happens is we tend to visit on the world the imperfections and the limitations that we exercise in our own intellect and emotions. Um, so um, the reason the book is divided into a series of sections, and the first one focusing especially on things that we can do, um, is that. So uh, some of the things that we suggest. Um, we suggest, for an example, that uh, one of the things that enables uh, the second half of life is to not view and judge the second half according to the same standards that we judge the first half. So we have a chapter called The Ruts of Ordinary Perception. And we talk about the fact that if we can get out of our habitual and somewhat limited way of viewing things and view what we're doing and what's happening in the world with new eyes, 
uh, it tends to help us redefine some of those things Sedina was referring to that the second half of life is 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 designed to do. Uh, just a little a little overview of that is is that you know really for me do not go quietly is about boldly stepping into this sort of rite of passage that we're having in the second half of life. And as George was saying, you know that. There's some things that we have to let go of. You know, when we went through our first puberty, we had to let go of being younger. Uh, that part of us, in order to fully bloom into our young adulthood. And so now this rite of passage we're stepping into midlife and elder years requires a deeper understanding. So in order to do that, as George said, it's, it's looking at where, where were we? You know, what were some of uh, the successes and failures that came before? And uh, just being willing to, to take a look at the myth of youth and not try to hang on to that so tightly because we are changing, and change is good. If we're, we're not changing, we're not growing. And uh, we'll never grow until we change, actually. So uh, this is a, just a really valuable piece, and, and we address it in all those opening chapters that George is saying. The other thing I like about that process that you were recommending is that we tend to have this accumulation of guilt and regrets and kind of mm -hmm. negative feelings about the past. And you're putting a positive spin on it. You're saying these were the stepping stones on your way to wisdom. So harvest the wisdom from each experience and then collect that into your way forward. I thought that was beautiful. Well, thank you. It, it's, um, uh, you know, in, in the history of psychology, the, the difference between uh, Freudian and Jungian uh, psychology is based on that. You know, uh, Freud was all about naming and uh, to some degree blaming, whether it was self or whatever, uh, for uh, a variety of sins and, and limitations. And Jung recognized that all of this was grist for the mill, because without these things, uh, how could we possibly learn and evolve? It's one of the reasons that when I think people have belief systems that are a little too rigid um, and don't allow them to step outside of the lines and experience life from a variety of different perspectives, then it's very difficult to accumulate genuine wisdom in life. And um, so uh, we do believe that all of the stuff that we have uh, if we look at life as a giant school and that we're always in school, uh, that we never graduate until we graduate, uh, and even then, depending on the belief systems we hold, uh, there are other graduate programs or other degree programs that we enter after we pass beyond the physical level. But uh, the truth is that uh, if everything is, a, is an opportunity for learning and we look at it that way, then suddenly what we have been judging as bad or evil or, uh, or, or flawed or whatever suddenly takes on a whole new meaning. I mean, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in sports, it's, uh, uh, in baseball, for an example, if somebody hits uh, one out of three hits, uh, they bat at the very top of the league, you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
but we don't think about life that way. We tend to judge ourselves. And as you said, uh, the judgment, the guilt, all of that stuff that we carry around, it's like we're, we're dragging this huge trunk behind us. Uh, filled with all of this debris and we wonder why we're not able to move lightly and joyfully and engaged in our world. So this part of the book is all about sifting through that stuff, acknowledging it, learning from it, uh, and then using it as gold that we can invest in the right. next part and, of life. And also having a willingness to do that. It's like anything, if we're not willing to open to it, Kind of like, you know, you're hiking in a valley. You, you never know what it's going to be like to get to the top of the mountain. And thinking about it is never the same as being there. So we get to the top and suddenly we breathe in this expanse and we see this vast overview that's possible during the second half of our life. But we have to be willing to rise to, to it and have this higher perspective, this HP. Or it could be like the higher power, you know, within <laughs> us and all around us. It suddenly opens up when we're willing to come and see, oh, this is a different time of life. I, there are totally new perspectives and new opportunities and possibilities that I had no idea were even here. Instead of going from the values and the, all of the limiting mindsets that we've been given since we were young about what it is to get older. Mm -hmm. One of the most liberating things about getting into the second half of life, of course, is the luxury of not having to conform, uh, getting to that point where you don't care what other people think, that you can speak your mind. And one of the things that we have to avoid conforming to are conventional notions of aging. You and your book give aging a whole new meaning. Well, it, uh, um, the, the truth is, Miriam, I think it has always had a different meaning. But um, here in America, where this uh, obsession with youth and aversion to age has developed, um, we've stopped telling the truth about aging. Yes, it has uh, a number of aspects to it that, that have their own distinct challenges. But the truth of the matter is birth is a challenge. Uh, learning language in the beginning is a challenge. Learning to walk, learning to, to engage in interaction with other children, uh, uh, beginning relationships, uh, education, you know, all the way through our lives. We're met with significant challenges, but also remarkable opportunities. And aging isn't any different. Um, so uh, we, we experience some limitations in uh, physical motion or range and some of the things that we, can never, we can't do as easily as we did before, you know. Uh, but at the same time, there are all of these incredible opportunities that uh, open up, some that you mentioned, you know, where people finally say, I don't give a darn anymore, you know, I don't care what my neighbor thinks or mm -hmm. whatever, I'm, uh, this is my life, and finally I recognize that I need to be free to live it. Um, but there are also new uses of time and energy. There's a whole inner dimension to be explored uh, and, and prepared for. Uh, there are all kinds of gifts. And when we look in history, we can identify so many people 
who did not even begin to do some of their best work until they were in their 50s or 60s or 80s or 90s. Um, and that's the, the lie that the media tells, you know, that they turn older people into doddering fools or uh, people who are the butts of jokes. And one of the intentions we have is to shake up that image, to put a true and new face on aging so that we recognize all the extraordinary things we can do um, and that we can do right to the end of the line. And you know, there's, uh, to back that up now, there's been extensive research on thousands of people, 50 plus, and they found what they're calling a develop, developmental possibility for the second half of life, which begins at 50 and really ramps up at 80. And the development is not of the body. We don't deny that the physical performance will decline with age and so forth. But this development is of the mind and spirit. And for those who are willing to tap into what is really a stage of evolution, the decline of the body and all of those losses that come with aging will be easier to bear. And as George said, there, there's actually evidence that shows an increased inner security, a redefinition of time and space and of life and death and the self and our relationship to others. And I, I think of this as, as enlivened aging or beyond aging. You, know, mm -hmm. you could ask yourself, what did you... What do you know now that you did not know when you were 20, 30, or even 40? You know, we can really find new purpose, and it can be, a, I mean, we can think of 50, 60, and 70, and so on, our years of enlivened, joyful, sexy, juicy, I mean, they can be whatever we want them to be if our vision, again, is a higher perspective. And then as soon as we allow that in, then... It's like that energy moves in, and we're all of a sudden we are in a more expansive, light-filled space, and we we're we're mentors to others, and we're not looked at in that way. I think we have to own this elderhood for younger people and our whole culture to see that it's it's just wrong where we've been. It's antiquated. It's time to update, contemporize. You know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I, I must say I loved those bits at the end of each chapter where you have um, the, the the mini bio of so-and-so who at age 88, you know, Michelangelo painted the Sistine Chapel or something. You know, I was just interviewing um, Dr. Bernie Siegel for my book, and um, he told an anecdote which is relevant here, where he called up a family of one of his cancer patients who he had sent home to die, and the cancer patient answered the phone, uh, alive, well, and uh, juicy. And what had happened was that he figured, okay, I've only got two months to live. He did absolutely everything that he wanted to do in his life. And he was enjoying himself so much, he said, I don't have time to die. <laughs> <laughs> That's so wonderful. It's a great story. And, yeah. And I think, great. I think it's also a story, Miriam, that is told more and more often these days as people break out of the mold of uh, traditional thinking. I mean, when we look around at so many of the people we're blessed to work with and, and know in our lives, 
Um, and when I think back and compare um, people that I knew who were in their 50s or 60s when I was a boy and how these people are today, how my friends are, how I am, uh, it clearly is a whole new world. Um, and it deserves a reframing and a, uh, a rearticulation of what life is about at this time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that, there's that anonymous quote I love, is never fear growing old. There are many who have never had the privilege. <laughs> yes. So you That's might as well enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, my uh, our, our son in Australia just uh, they had a baby and named her Elsie. And I was thinking, Elsie, Elsie, I know that song. And I looked it up on the web. It's the song from Cabaret. And they talk about Elsie being the happiest corpse I'd ever seen. And then I made up my mind back in Chelsea, when I go, I'm going like Elsie. Yes, I remember that. Um, You know, skidding into home base at Heaven's Pearly Gates. Um, I, I just love that whole image, and that's, that's what I want to do. Um, but speaking of the pearly gates, this is one of the things that we tend to have a taboo about, talking about death. And uh, you make a great case for just getting your things in order, you know, being ready. Don't be afraid of it, but, you know, put your house in order. Um, what are some of the things that we need to focus on in that regard? Well, you know, there are a host of, of so many practical things um, in terms of uh, making sure that uh, whatever assets we have are in order and uh, if we want to designate, um, you know, to whom they are to be given or received by um, the uh, the the. the the stories are so legion of individuals who don't take the time to do that, and then uh, something happens uh, much earlier in many instances in their life than they expect, and so they find themselves uh, leaving behind a whole mess that other people have to somehow or another clean up, and it causes dissension and difficulties. So uh, certainly uh, taking care of those financial aspects of one's life. Um, all of the other choices are what do you do with um, any of the knowledge or the legacy that you've created that um, may not seem to have as tangible a, a value but uh, has incredible amounts of value in that you're the only one that could possibly lead your life. And so that's a note that you have to contribute to this great song that's life. So uh, what are you going to do about all of that? Uh, what about your own transition? Are you, have you thought about uh, what that passage should be and how it's to be taken care of? And, Who's going to be responsible? So, you know, there there are a whole set of kind of getting ready. Um, And also, um, if we pay attention to a number of different spiritual teachers and disciplines uh, throughout history, um, we again and again are told that um, the the, the time um, to deal with the concept of death is while we're living. Not only does it uh, deeply enrich 
um, the, the moment-by-moment experience of life because it makes it even more precious. But most important, um, uh, if we wait until we die uh, to do the things that we need to do, to align our spirit, to open our heart, to uh, live lives of greater grace and generosity and all the rest of it, we're surely going to miss the boat, you know? Um, And so these are all preparatory things, but they're also ways of coming to terms with dying. And, uh, I mean, we don't have any problems with the subject of birth. We don't have that many difficulties with the subject of marriage or graduation or any of the the milestones in life, but I don't know where this anomaly crept into our system where suddenly we believed that there was uh, an entrance but there wasn't an exit or we could deny (laughs) the idea of an exit, you know? Well, our our society has just really taught us from from very young ages that uh, it, it, it looks down on it. It's as if it's a failure, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, it's part of life. One of, you know, the, what we're trying to do in the book, because it is something that people stick their heads in the sand about, so it, there's a lot of support in the book to go through these things, the question that you asked, for instance, Miriam, uh, gets answered so that you can follow through and think about these things real time. And by the time you get to that, you know, you're sort of prepared to do it. And it enriches your life. It, it, I think, um, as George said, so many teachers um, have taught us in the series, Don Juan series. Carlos Castaneda talks about walking with death over your left shoulder and, and making peace with, with death and knowing that then you will have a conscious exit. And the other thing is also to, uh, if we... If we identify with our soul rather than our bodies, you know, but our soul, uh, suddenly a lot of fear is, is gone. Uh, you know, we're, we're going to be a limitless being. We're going to go on from here. It, it makes it a lot more palatable. But if we're just our bodies, it, it, it's very limiting. And no wonder people are afraid. I think it's no coincidence that the vast majority of the audience in any kind of body, mind, spirit workshop or lecture are people over the age of 50. Uh, I suppose because as you do approach the end of your time uh, on Earth, um, in physical body, um, you start thinking more about spiritual things. You do have both the motivation and the luxury uh, to do that. Um, you, you, you offer a number of avenues for kind of getting closer or cultivating that aspect, including um, mind-altering substances, I was interested to note. Um, what have they given you in terms of your view of the universe? Well, the, that early chapter that we talked about, uh, the ruts of ordinary perception, that term comes from Aldous Huxley, and Huxley obviously was a, uh, an innovator and a journeyer into a number of aspects of consciousness. And um, our journeys, uh, both individually and jointly, um, have covered a lot of different ground and used a lot of different techniques. Um, 
I mean, um, you know, Stanislav Graf uh, uh, and his holotropic breathwork, for an example, is a way that a number of people have learned how to duplicate uh, uh, mind-altered experiences simply through the use of the breath. Uh, yoga does many of the same things in a lot of its manifestations. Uh, meditation, to a large extent, is certainly a mind-altering experience. And then, along the way, there are a series of hallucinogenics and, um, and other kinds of grains and drugs that various people use, both in sacred rites and ceremonies and also in uh, psychological adventures and journeys. And um, there's a wonderful story um, that um, uh, an, an old friend of ours tells, a very wise old friend, about meeting uh, a very noted scientist on an airplane. And uh, during the course of that journey uh, together, uh, they were talking, and this wise old friend shared his experience with hallucinogenics. And this world-renowned scientist turned his nose up at him and said, um, oh, he said, that's like uh, climbing a mountain using uh, a cable car or right. something. I'm not interested in that <laughs> at all. And um, so they went their way, uh, although they stayed in touch with correspondence. And about three years later, this wise old friend of ours got a letter from this renowned scientist saying, um, I was uh, introduced to hallucinogenics. And what I want to say is, forget all that nonsense I told you on the plane. <laughs> so uh, whatever it is that yeah. people can do that gets them outside of their ruts, uh, provided it is done with a degree of you know, safety and authenticity, and, um, and it's not done simply out of the cries of addiction or whatever, uh, uh, it, uh, are certainly things that we encourage because uh, mm -hmm. it changes one's life. Absolutely. Sure. Well, we've been talking about inner work. Now let's talk about outer work. What are our options for shaking up the world? You gave some wonderful examples of for like uh, communal living and, and new economic models. Pick one and lead us into it. Well, uh, think about uh, alternative lifestyles, uh, one, you know, and alternative forms of living. Um, I mean, uh, we live in a consumer-based society, so the fact that we are all dutiful consumers uh, is one of the things that keeps the illusion of this engine cooking. Um, but the truth of the matter is, it's really, especially as we age, um, to have to duplicate uh, all of the basic services. Everybody needs a refrigerator and stove and, and all the rest of it. And so a huge amount of, uh, of assets go into the duplication um, of, um, of these basic requirements. And yet there are so many interesting models. Paolo Soleri, although he has never been able to achieve in practical terms a lot of his visions, if you read his writing, uh, he talks, and it makes so much sense to have 
collective spaces where some of the resources that we need are present, and then private spaces for uh, our own comfort and our opportunity to do some of the inner work or the personal aspects of life that we want. So uh, ownership as we know it is a large burden that sits on the shoulders of a lot of people as they age. And as we learned as recently as two or three years ago, uh, some of that ownership can disappear overnight because of the foolishness and greed and manipulation of other people. Um, so uh, finding new ways to collaborate, to gather together, to support each other, to build community, these are such vital and important new strategies. And you know, Miriam, we have a friend uh, who's in her 60s, and she's just uh, put out the word and is very engaged, has a good background to do it. She's beginning a, a Santa Fe cooperative, food cooperative. And that's just an example. And it's a way of the whole community coming together, being, in, you know, really overseeing the food that they get and the quality of it and being in community. And there's country, gar you know, uh, gardens that people can take on in community. Because Men's Life and Beyond is really new territory for all of us. And this is a different life phase from the career uh, and family building years that we all had, at least for me, in the 20s, 30s, and even 40s and 50s. And it's new territory. It's not the same as our parents' uh, retirement and what they did. We're really reinventing, and we have the opportunity to reinvent anew what it means to keep contributing to society, to be mentoring younger people, to uh, show generations to come that if we continue to grow and reinvent ourselves, you know, we really can pioneer new paths and, and resurrect our dreams, which is another huge focus for, for us in the book. It's so important to go inside and, and uncover what those gifts and talents are that you might have set aside and see how you can bring those out in the world. And the more we think that of others to come in on those dreams with us, uh, the more that we're doing what George is talking about. I know we're not duplicating. You actually made a, a very cogent distinction between desires and dreams. Yes. yes. Can you expand on that? Sure. Um, we believe that um, we make, we also make a, a distinct difference between believing and knowing, you know, um, and these two uh, areas are very uh, connected to one another. Um, we live in a world where we tend to live our lives based largely on other people's beliefs. Um, and um, uh, uh, as a result, we have become a society that is easily manipulated in a variety of ways. Uh, it's almost impossible to manipulate someone when they're operating on a belief, I mean on a knowing that they have. I know how to ride a bicycle. It's a physical reality. Uh, somebody comes along and tries to tell me that uh, the wheels are supposed to be upside down and whatnot. <laughs> I tend to not pay much attention to that person. There's a similar distinction between uh, dreams and desires. Desires for us are artificially stimulated um, by uh, 
uh, induction, by uh, forms of manipulation and education. So we have a lot of desires, whereas dreams emerge from the essence of who we are. Sedina was just talking about those dreams. They're, they're the notes that we were born to live. You know, in indigenous cultures, many of the shaman in tribes, one of their principal jobs is when a new child is born into that tribe or community, it's the shaman's job to help identify what the gift is that this child has come into that tribe to deliver and to live out. How different that is from our culture, where a child is born and before long we're attempting to turn them into a, a mimicry of some trend or some uh, a belief system of a time. Instead of letting that uh, enormously gifted, innocent, unique being come into their own and share what they've come here for, we tend to denude them of their individuality and their authenticity. Um, and desires are the things that, that uh, those who care to lead us around by the nose with, whereas dreams, those are distinct, those are individual, those are unique. Right. And of course, yeah. there are many beliefs that we hold when we're younger, and the, in the book we, we do our best to guide people through uh, looking at what some of those beliefs are, because certainly I have different beliefs and values now than I had when I was 20, 30, or 40. And um, so we're, we've really uh, written the book in a way to be an interactive coaching session so that people can do this work, but do it in a really, um, in their own personal time and a very cathartic process. One of the things that inspired me the most was this notion that you have the permission to go back and look at your dreams and it's never too late to manifest them in the world. That's incredibly empowering. Well, that's, but it's that's true. That. Yes, it is. Absolutely. It is, Miriam. And that's back to that, that thing we were talking about, about the shaman identifying the gifts of the innocent ch children that are born into a community. Um, they are alive, those dreams. They're in the DNA of the individual. And yet we, um, uh, you know, this, this mimicry that we call education today, as you know, the word edu education comes from educare, which means to call forth from within. But in turn, we've turned education into a means of making people um, uh, adapted uh, or domesticated, as Don Miguel Ruiz says, uh, individuals who are able to fit within an economic system. Our whole world is predicated on values that were created during the age of reason and the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and we're still clinging tenaciously to those outmoded values that have nothing to do with individuality and uniqueness and authenticity. George and I also believe that we, we came into this world, as he was alluding to earlier, with a, a dream, with, with a destiny. And uh, we certainly, uh, from my, my uh, point of view, is that I started as an actress. I did a lot of things. I had no idea it was going to bring me to the place that I am now. But by honoring those skills and talents that I was drawn to when I was younger, I'm, I, I couldn't do what I'm doing now if I hadn't done that. 
so we encourage the reader to uncover those things that made us feel good, that brought creativity to the to the surface, that made us smile, or those people that um, really believed in us or had values that we thought a lot of. To just thinking of those things will resurrect those dreams that we came here to live. Mm. And some of us had to leave those behind to have children or have a career or whatever. And you're absolutely right, Miriam. This is a time when we can just go for it. We don't have to worry about it. We can really go for it and uh, make this time of life the absolute best time. Now, you were both talking about the different models that one can create uh, for the next part of life now. And this relates more or less to the legacy that we're leaving behind us. Now, uh, I think uh, certainly from your book, we all have a sense that we can never, ever go back to business as usual. The world uh, as it is being run today is simply not sustainable, not on an environmental level, not on a socioeconomic level. So we absolutely must create new models. And if not us, who? I love that you kept on quoting Hillel. If not yes. now, when? If not us, then who? Yes. Um. And you have you have put your uh, money where your mouth is, and you have this uh, interesting website. Tell us about it, Age Nation. Well, yes, it's it's actually a a pretty uh, robust architecture that includes uh, AgeNation.com. It includes uh, the Age Nation Radio Network. It includes Next, a national digital magazine. It includes uh, Age Nation Live, which is both a series of uh, live and online conferences and webinars and programs. Um, Age Nation Consulting uh, is a division that helps organizations as well as individuals look ahead to the future and determine what it is that they need to do today to get ready for tomorrow. Um, eventually there'll be Age Nation Television, Age Nation Travel, even Age Nation Living and Learning Communities. So. Um, it's time we, for all of it. We have indeed uh, invested uh, a significant amount of money and time and energy and resource in uh, in creating this um, enterprise called Age Nation and uh, are honored to be able to do this work uh, in the world um, with a lot of other people. We've just created a, a world council of wisdom keepers with Gene Houston and Michael Mead and Ram Das and Angela Sarian and Barbara Marks Hubbard and a whole series of people who are uh, well in the second half of life and frankly are uh, kicking butt and taking names, you know, as they say. <laughs> and, uh, um, and we intend to um, move the United Nations to declare a year of the elder so all around the planet there can be celebrations and acknowledgments and realignment of that. We're pushing the, the Obama administration and other governments to uh, uh, nominate new cabinet-level positions called uh, Secretary of Longevity. Um, we're doing a lot to make our world age-friendly. 
uh, and uh, because every culture, Miriam, that has ended up denying the wisdom of elders uh, and not including elders in the flow of things has imploded. But the indigenous cultures that have lasted and some of the societies that have lasted the longest are those that pay attention uh, to elders. And by wisdom, I don't mean a strutting around uh, proclaiming all of the victories and the successes. T.S. Eliot said, um, don't tell me just about the wisdom of old men, but of their frailties and their follies. And mm -hmm. that's part of the wisdom that we need a lot of in our world. And so we really do invite people to go on uh, the Age Nation site, to go on Facebook, and sort of get involved and, and interact, because we also need to show generations to come that as we age, you continue to grow and you continue to reinvent yourself. And so we're here to show that we're by no means finished with making a significant difference in our world. We invite everyone to come on board and uh, bring their own individual gifts and talents. That's what they're here for. Um, and, you know, be involved with what we're doing. This is a very big uh, buffet table <laughs> that we've laid out. And the, the uh, address of that hub would be agenation.com? Yes. That's right. Mm -hmm. Well, we have been speaking with George and Sedina Capanelli whose book, Do Not Go Quietly, A Guide to Living Consciously and Aging Wisely for People Who Weren't Born Yesterday, is launching now, and I warmly recommend it to everyone, not just 50-plus, but all of you others who want to get ready, because the world is changing, and it ain't going to go back. George and Sedina, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank, oh, thank you, you so Marianne, much. for beautiful interview and um, the synergy is there, and it, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Would you like a chance to win George and Sedina's book, or one of dozens of other marvelous books that we get for review each month? All you have to do is go to our website, ncreview.com, and click on the NCR Giveaway tab at the top right-hand corner. And I want to congratulate Andrew, who won last week's drawing. Next week, our guest will be Denisa Perry, the filmmaker behind the documentary Awaken. I do hope you'll join us. And now we're going to close with our track of the week selected by Scott Johnson from among members of the Positive Music Association. This week's song is by Sue Hodge from Edmonton, Canada, called It's Time for Joy. It's time for joy It's time for joy Keep the home fires burning Come to the hearth in prayer Heart to heart I hear what I hear Keep my ear to the ground It's time for joy so many roads, so many choices, so many souls, so many voices. 
when it's hard to listen, when it's hard to hear, I just sit myself down and I find you near. for joy isn't it ever by sue hodge from her remarkable album of healing songs called take me home sue is a sound healer singer songwriter workshop facilitator and author and she has served in music ministry at the edmonton center for spiritual living to find out more about her music go to soundtouch.ca to discover more great music or to join the Positive Music Association, go to their website at positivemusicassociation.com. If you enjoyed our interviews, you'll find many more on our website at ncreview.com, along with reviews and thousands of new consciousness books and films and videos. Please join us. If you want to listen to our interviews or watch our videos on the go, you'll find a link right on the homepage to our mobile app. That's at ncreview.com. And I hope you'll follow us on Twitter and Facebook under NC Review. Well, that wraps up our show for today, and I do hope you'll join us next week and tell your friends. So until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.